Welcome to the All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. We are committed to being rooted in the scriptures and the historic Christian faith and to kingdom life in the power of the Holy Spirit. As you listen, may you be encouraged and empowered to know the Lord Jesus and make him known. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we are starting this new series on Hebrews, and what we're going to see through these 13 chapters in the coming weeks is the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. What is the book of Hebrews about? It is about the supremacy of Jesus, his uniqueness, his greatness. The book of Hebrews shouts throughout the history of the church, there is no one like Jesus. There's no one like him. Now, at the same time, it is a Trinitarian book because the Father sends the Son, and the Son is anointed by the Spirit and raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the book is about the supremacy of Jesus, but underlying it is the supremacy of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at the first four verses, but before we do that, I thought it would be good to give some helpful background information on the book of Hebrews. So we're dropping down into it and learning a little bit of the background, the key themes, And that will help us kind of lay out a roadmap for the coming days. Lord, we thank you for Holy Scripture. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and the gift that it has been to your church for 2,000 years. And we receive the gift of the book of Hebrews today, the message. And we pray, Holy Spirit, the one who inspires every word of Scripture and every word of Hebrews that you would open our eyes to see the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So how about a little bit of background information? I'll try to pace that a little bit, and then we'll revisit it at times, but I think it's important there. And if you have a study Bible, it does some of this for you. I want us to talk briefly about the author, the, the reader's the circumstances in which this letter was written, and that will just help enrich your reading. And maybe in the coming weeks, you want to read Hebrews chapter by chapter. Follow along with us. It's so rich, and there's so many layers to it that we're going to have to take it in bits and pieces. Like I said today, we're going to try to make it through the first four verses, but we'll see. I must admit, because we all learn from one another, there is a commentary by a professor named William Lane, and he wrote a commentary on Hebrews, and I am drawing from that, especially in the background information. So I am grateful for William Lane, who is now with the Lord. So the author of the book of Hebrews, who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? One early church father named Origen said, only God knows. So we don't know, church, who wrote this. Early on, they thought it was the Apostle Paul, and so they placed it at the end of Paul's epistles, his letters in the New Testament. But as time has gone on, they've realized that most likely Paul did, he probably did not write this. And so suggestions have been made that 
It was someone in Paul's circle, his missionary circle, part of his church planting team, maybe Barnabas, perhaps Silas, maybe Apollos. That's what Martin Luther said. He proposed that Apollos wrote it. We could list others, but only God knows who wrote this magnificent book. And frankly, it doesn't matter. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to equip and encourage and empower the church. What about the audience and readers? Well, I hate to tell you, we don't know who they are either. And so sometimes that is the work of Christian historians as we try to read the, the letter and look at the details and glean some of the clues so that we could have an educated guess. And there are some, some guesses. You know, it's called the book of Hebrews because these are Christians who seem to be really familiar with Jewish theology and practices. And so what we're going to see in every chapter, there's 13 chapters, and what we're going to see is that the author, whoever that is, knows that the readers are familiar with the Hebrew Bible, with the Old Testament. And so he'll oftentimes lay out a passage from the Old Testament, and then he'll explain it, and he'll explain its connection to Jesus and his fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. So it's called Hebrews because these were apparently Hebrew, Greek-speaking Christians. We'll learn more about that in a little bit. Many people think that it was written to people in Rome, but we're not sure. This is fascinating here. This book, this 13-chapter book here, was written most likely for a small group that met in a house. Think about that for a minute. Here it is, the book of Hebrews. It's enriched the church, challenged the church, encouraged the church for 2,000 years, and yet in its beginning, it was written for a small group of people, probably between 15 and 25, because that's the size of homes in that day. And we learned through the book of Acts that they met together in homes, and so this letter was written for a small house church. Isn't that amazing? And so you're going to have your minds blown as you see the gift that God would give to a small group of people, 15 to 25, to encourage them. The circumstances and the date, most people think that it was around, most conservative scholars think it was written around 68 A.D., and we know that. The mention of Timothy in chapter 13, he's referenced, and he had been recently re released from prison, and there was a persecution that had been unleashed against the church by Nero, and that ended in 64 A.D. So again, I'm not going to get into all of the details and nuances here, but scholars think that this was written for a house church, possibly in Rome around 68 A.D. Look at Hebrews 13, 22. I want to show you what kind of work this is. You know, Scripture is filled with poetry. There's poems. There's prophecies. There's rhetorical arguments. There's all kinds of genres or types of writings. And this one is really difficult to figure out because it has elements of a letter, elements of a sermon, but I want you to see the author says this, Hebrews 13, 22. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And so the author of Hebrews says, this is meant to be a word of exhortation. For this church that's meeting in your home, I want to exhort you and encourage you. And friends, what we're going to see in this letter is they needed clarification on who Jesus was. And so the author is going to explain who Christ is by laying the Old Testament scriptures before this group of people. And he's going to explain the supremacy of Jesus based on specific texts specific verses from the Old Testament. What's fascinating, though, and we're going to see this as we make our way through it, the purpose and the plan of the letter is to encourage people. We just saw it, right? But we're going to see that this group of believers, they were facing upcoming persecution and suffering. We don't know exactly what was causing that, but throughout the letter, sprinkled throughout the letter are moments of encouragement, and the author is going to say, don't give up. Don't lose your faith. Keep on fighting the fight of faith. Keep on running the race. Follow Christ. And it's interesting, the combination of laying out the scriptures to encourage and exhort them, and at the same time, calling them to persist. And friends, I think this letter, written 2,000 years ago, is going to speak directly to us. Many of us need to hear the same message. Don't give up. Keep fighting the fight of faith. You're running a marathon, not a sprint. And we'll see that in chapter 12. He's going to use, the author is going to use all kinds of word pictures to encourage them to keep on keeping on. Keep on with Christ. Now we'll see here, almost done with the introductory thoughts here. I mentioned that the author of Hebrews is going to show the superiority of Christ. And I've got a little image here can see the blue one with the different concentric circles. You can see down below here, this really is kind of a encapsulation of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. Jesus is supreme. To what? We're going to see in chapter 1. We'll see this next time we look at verses 5 and following. Christ is supreme to all angels. Christ is supreme to Moses the prophet and the entire Mosaic law, which he fulfills, and then Christ is a superior priest. And so what you're going to get as you walk through the book of Hebrews is you're going to get an education on Christ in his Old Testament context. All of the verses, all of the prophetic promises pointing to him, showing that all of these things are but a shadow of the substance that Christ brings. Someone has said that the book of Hebrews is permeated or impregnated with the Old Testament, and that's exactly right. We're going to see that every chapter is just shot through and founded on the Old Testament. And we'll see this later, but they're not using the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, but the Greek version. 
I'll explain more of that later. It's the Septuagint. The people outside of Israel took the Jewish scriptures and translated them into Greek so that the Word of God, the Old Testament, was more accessible to Greek-speaking people. And so this book is based on the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's the extent of my geeking out. So we're done with introductory stuff. How are you doing? Doing okay? Does that help a little bit? A little bit about the audience, the author, the genre. And now let's dig in. Let's read the first four verses and unpack a little bit of this. Do you mind standing? This is such a glorious text here. And we have encountered the Lord Jesus this morning so far, haven't we? In worship and declaring who he is. And now we're going to hear these first four verses. Some of the most majestic in the entire New Testament that speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Friends, this is the word of God. You can grab a seat. So we're going to see here the beginning of many contrasts The book of Hebrews is going to say it was this way, but now it's this way. Here it was in the Old Testament promises. This is how it is now with Christ, the fulfillment of all of those promises. So we see right there at verse 1, the first point, God spoke long ago in many ways. And so the author of Hebrews is getting the people to reflect on the Old Testament story, the narrative a period of almost 2,000 years from Job to Nehemiah, about 2,200 years before Christ to about 400 years before Christ. And he's saying, you know, readers, that the Scriptures are a record of God speaking and revealing and saving across different times and cultures. And so he knows that just by saying that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in these various ways. They're going to remember God speaking to Adam and Eve from the beginning. They're going to remember the patriarchs. They're going to remember judges and the kings and the prophets. And they're going to recall all the different ways that God spoke through his direct voice, through dreams, through visions, through parables. Some of the most prominent things that we find in the Old Testament. Many ways that God spoke, one of them, think about Abraham. How did God speak to Abraham in Genesis 12? Can you remember, church? He invites him to go out at nighttime, and what's he have him do? Has him look up at the stars. 
has him contemplate the beauty of creation. And then he says, you see all these stars? I'm going to make your offspring. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than all the stars. And so the author of Hebrews is getting them and us to reflect on God speaking in many various ways, including that promise to Abraham, which becomes central to the whole Old Testament. How about Moses in Exodus 3? How does God speak to Moses? Some of you that have seen Prince of Egypt, he speaks through a fiery bush. The word of the Lord comes to him, and he reveals his name, says, I am that I am. And then he sends Moses to be a deliverer of the Israelites. So in many ways, various ways, God has spoken to our ancestors. Think of the prophets. I love Daniel 7. The Lord gives this young man, Daniel, a series of visions. He speaks to him. Even in the night, in Daniel 7, he has this stunning vision of God sitting on a throne with fire pouring out. And then one like a son of man who seems to be human but more than human approaches the throne of fire. And the word of the Lord comes to Daniel and says that this is the son of man. He's the Messiah. And one day all the kingdoms of the earth will belong to him. So friends, the Lord has spoken. He is a God who speaks. And we're going to see the book of Hebrews reiterates that. God spoke from Genesis to Malachi all the way through. God has spoken in many and various ways. And that sets up for verse 2. You see it there? The first contrast. God's spoken all of these different amazing ways. But what's it say? But in these last days, God has spoken by a son. And friends, this is one of the highest moments in the entire New Testament. The author is going to lay out seven affirmations about the person of Jesus. And when you read this, there's no mistaking it. Jesus is fully human. He's a man, 100%, but he's fully God. And a text like this, theologians call this high Christology. Can we say Christology together? Christology. This is really high, lofty Christology. What is Christology? Christology is the theology of Christ. It's reflection on who Christ is. And these few verses right here are lofty words about Jesus. I mentioned there's seven affirmations, declarations of who Jesus is and what he does, what he's done here. And then throughout the rest of the book, he's going to use that. He's going to use a pattern of sevens. He'll say seven things about Christ. He'll talk about seven saving works that God has done through Christ. He'll make seven affirmations about the priesthood of Christ. But here is very dense, high, lofty, Christology. Now, Amanda and I were talking about this this week. I've already mentioned this letter is written for people who are facing persecution and suffering. Their lives are on the line, and look at how this letter begins. If you were writing a letter 
to people facing persecution and suffering and hard times, perhaps their lives being on the line, is this where you would start? How would you start your letter? The author of Hebrews, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, gets them to see Jesus. That's where he starts. And so, friends, we're seeing from the beginning of the book those who are facing hard times need to see Jesus. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are burdened with, whatever you are struggling with, however you are suffering, the answer is to see the Lord Jesus in all of his majesty and glory. This is like a divine resume here. This is showing us seven things on the resume of Christ, who he is, what he's done, why he is worthy of our trust. And so I want to invite us from the beginning, and maybe today I shared I came pretty burdened in heart. Maybe you are burdened. Maybe your heart is aching and breaking. Maybe you don't know if you're going to make it past this week. Friend, you need to see Jesus. That's the answer. That's the answer found in this book. That's the answer found in the entire New Testament is you need to catch a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's no religious leader, friends. He's not just a great philosopher. Jesus is not just a wise man. He's not just a compassionate healer. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And that's what these few verses are saying here. And I try to show respect for people of other religions because I think that's important. But it's also important to see a text like this and say, only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can human beings be saved. That's it. And so I'm all for interfaith dialogue and engaging Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims thoughtfully and listening to their tradition. But if we're faithful to our tradition, if we're faithful to the words of Scripture, Christ alone saves. And these are the reasons why. Look at verse 2 there. In these last days, we've seen that God had spoken previously to the Old Testament mothers and fathers of the faith, but now the author of Hebrews is saying in around 68 AD, the last days are here, and the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would come, and when he came, the latter days, the end times, the last days would be initiated, and passages like Hosea 3.5 it speaks about the last days. God himself promises that the last days, the latter days, would come. 
And so the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ has come. The eternal word of God has entered into human history, and the latter days have broken upon us. The Apostle Paul and others will talk about it. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He says to the church at Corinth, the end of the ages has come upon you. It's a great mystery. And friends, we read a text like this and we realize God's view of time is different than ours. Would you agree? The Apostle Peter deals with this in 2 Peter 3. He says, give up trying to figure out God's timetable. With God, a day is like a thousand years. God's outside of time. He's sovereign. He rules over time. And in his great mercy, the latter days are initiated, but he's patient, and he's allowing more and more people time to repent and come to Christ. So friends, you are living in the last days. Some people say, when are the last days coming? You're in them. Christ has come. The king has come. He's initiated the kingdom of God, and it will be consummated one day. It is a great mystery, but this text tells us in the last days, look at the second part of verse 2 there, God has spoken to us, how? By a son, by his son, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's wonderful because it's appreciative of the Old Testament and all the different ways that God has spoken, but in these last days with the coming of Christ, there is a more clear word. It's much clearer. It's kind of like looking at a film in black and white. You can still see the details of the film, who the characters are, the things that are happening. But imagine that film switches to full color. That's what's happened in the last days with the coming of Christ. All of those black and white promises are now in like Panavision. And you can see clearly all the colors and details as the Lord Jesus Christ comes and God has spoken to us by a son. Now look at these things. We're going to look at them quickly for the sake of time. But there's seven things that the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. What is the first one there? He is appointed the heir of all things. We know from Scripture that God is the creator and owner of all of creation. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God the Father created. He spoke it into existence. And he has declared, he has determined that his son, Jesus, the messianic king, would inherit all all thanks. And we're going to see this through the book of Hebrews. We're going to see Psalm 2 fulfilled in Christ, that the nations are promised to Christ, that he will inherit saints from all the nations. What else does it say? He's the heir of all things, like the firstborn son of God, Colossians 1.18 says. What else does it go on to say here, church? I want you to see it. What's the next thing, the next affirmation about Christ? Through him, God created the worlds. 
The word can mean ages. So it means through Christ, God created the entire universe and everything in it, all time, all space, all energy, all matter. There's a beautiful ancient icon I want you to see up here, and this is Christ, the one through whom God spoke and created. He is the co-creator with the Father. He's the agent of creation. Friends, he is not just a normal human being. He is the exalted co-creator and ruler of all things who will inherit all things. And in that picture, you can see some of the beasts and creatures and the sun and the moon. Christ is the eternal co-creator with God. And if we're not getting the message clearly enough, look at verse 3. The third thing that the text says about Jesus, it's glorious, isn't it? He is the reflection of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's very being. The Greek word here is actually character. Christ is the character of God's very being. And there's a word picture behind this, and that is Christ is the stamp of the Father. I put this picture up here. Why don't you flip to the next one, and then I'll explain it. You see there this ancient coin from around the time the letter was written. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. I'm going to give a minute here. So, God the Father in God the Son has placed his imprint, and he is the exact character. He is the exact imprint of the Father. Do you see it? And so, we're going to see through the book of Hebrews that Christ, his life is like soft metal, and the Father's imprint, his character is made on him. Do you want to know what the invisible, eternal God looks like? Look at Christ. You with me? The Son is the exact imprint of the Father. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul is talking about Christ, and he says Christ is the icon of the Father. Christ is the image of the Father. He is like a painting of all of the attributes and character and beauty and majesty of the Father. So the author of Hebrews is saying here, 
Christ bears the imprint. It's beautiful, isn't it? Worth meditating on here. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Like that signet ring that's pressed on hot wax, Christ bears the image of the Father. Now, when he says that he is the reflection of God's glory, you see it there at verse 3? Yes, he is like a mirror that reflects who God is, but he in his own person bears the majesty and glory of God. Friends, this is no ordinary person. This is the eternal Son of God. Are you seeing it here in these first few verses? At verse 3, the author is ending this little section here, and he says that the Son sustains all things by His powerful Word. So you've got the Father creating through the Son, through the Word, and now you have Christ the sustainer of all things. And how does he sustain? How does he keep it all going? Through the word of his power. Friends, the word of Christ is going to be central in the book of Hebrews. Why don't we stand up? I hope that you're catching a glimpse from the beginning of the supremacy of Jesus. You seeing it? The last thing at verse 4 says that the Son made purification for sins and He sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, it's what we were singing about this morning, the eternal Word of God, the heir of all things, the Son of God, the exact imprint of the Father the one filled with the majesty and glory of God, is the one who humbled himself, shed his own blood, made purification to save sinners like us, to redeem a church, to redeem people from every tribe and nation. And then he's exalted to the Father's right hand. Friends, this is glorious. This is the Lord that we serve and having a vision like this is what got the church through hard times and what will get us through hard times. It's a fitting way to shift to communion here. We're going to have communion on the left and the right here. You know the drill. We're doing that each week. Grateful for the team serving that. I'm going to read the text that we typically read from 1 Corinthians 11, and then we're going to end with Holy Communion and ministry time. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us today. As we were singing, as we were looking into the scriptures, we thank you for your presence among us. 
We thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body. We thank you that you have made purification for our sins, that you're seated at the Father's right hand. We want to encounter you through Holy Communion today and through ministry time. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up. We want to pray.